0: Hello, I'm Duncan Hollis of Temple Law School, and this is the fifth and final lecture in this mini-series on treaties and international law. In my first four talks, we've situated the treaty as a concept in history, functions, and doctrine. We've examined the definition and function of treaties in comparison to political commitments. We've assessed who has treaty-making capacities and the processes for treaty formation, and we've reviewed the rules on treaty validity and RUDs. In this last lecture, we're going to touch on four final subjects for thinking about treaties. Interpretation, domestic application, amendment, and exit. We'll begin with treaty interpretation, which itself might make a great topic for a mini-series. For now, I want to begin with a basic question. What are you trying to do when you interpret a text? Are you engaged in an objective effort, that is to determine the semantic linguistic meaning Or are you trying to figure out what the authors intended? A subjective approach, if you will. Or are you more teleological in your aims? Trying to figure out what purpose the text serves and giving effect to that. All three of these objective, subjective, and teleological approaches have roots in discrete interpretive schools that predated the Vienna Convention. An objective approach lies at the root of the so-called textual method, where treaties are to be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to their terms. The subjective approach is evident in the intentional method, where treaties are to be interpreted in accordance with their negotiator's intentions, which often requires looking at the travaux préparatoires, that is the treaties negotiating history. And the teleology of a purposive approach finds voice in the New Haven School named after Yale Law Professor Myers McDougall, who was its primary sponsor. The interpretive claim here is to look at the spirit of the document to the current intention of the parties as they emerge from the new requirements of international life and give effect to that, even if it doesn't always pair with the travaux or even the strict wording of the treaty text. I should be clear that these were not the only three interpretive schools. Our old friend Sovereignty offered a different justification for interpretation in the so-called restrictive theory, and here the idea was that you should interpret a provision affecting a state's sovereignty so as to give uh, the least imposition on that state's sovereignty. Now, what I'd like to do is, you know, is ha- either have you pull up, or we'll see if we can pull up a copy of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, specifically Article 31, uh, and have you take a look at it. Let's walk through it together. Article 31, first paragraph one, starts off by saying a treaty shall, quote, be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to the terms of the treaty in their context and in light of its object and purpose. This begs the question of what is a treaty's context? As the VCLT suggests, it will include the preamble, the annexes, the rest of the treaty's terms, as well as any contemporary agreement by all the parties or later accepted by all of them. Alongside the context, VCLT Article 31.3 adds a series of additional materials that must quote-unquote be taken into account. Subsequent agreements regarding the treaty's interpretation or application are included here, Uh, and note, moreover, that per the International Law Commission's recent work, (coughs) unlike itself, such subsequent agreements need not be binding. In addition, interpreters must also account for subsequent practice, which quote, unquote, establishes agreement of the parties regarding its interpretation. And finally, you must also take into account, quote, any relevant rules of international law applicable between the parties, end quote. Now, I've not spent any real time to date in these lectures discussing treaty conflicts. But this last criterion does trigger that issue. As written, does it mean treaties should always bow to other relevant rules? Not necessarily. You just need to take them into account. Simply put, the Vienna Convention rule on interpretation here aims to situate a treaty's meaning within the rest of the international legal order, rather than as self-contained regimes. There are, moreover, actual relevant rules of international law for handling successive treaties on the same subject matter. To be candid, they are not the strength of the Vienna Convention and are indeed incomplete in their scope, Still, they may help you frame out an approach when there are potential treaty conflicts. For starters, VCLT Article Thirty Two, Article 30 subparagraph 2 says a treaty can provide that a prior treaty will prevail using the date of adoption, not entry into force. And that's sufficient for that prior treaty to gain priority. Otherwise, in the event of a conflict among treaties on the same subject matter, the later in time treaty prevails per Article 30 subparagraph 3. Where states are parties to both treaties, their mutual obligations take priority uh, accordingly. The problem is the rules do not address what happens when a state owes different states conflicting obligations. Say state A owes state B X obligation under its bilateral investment treaty, but state A owes anti-X to state C under a separate free trade agreement. Here, the Vienna Convention does not offer an answer for us. So, as lawyers, we're better off trying to avoid these situations, draft around them if you can, otherwise reverting to peaceful settlement or even international adjudication if the conflict becomes apparent later on. Okay, let's move away from treaty conflicts then and back to the heart of our interpretive rules. Now, beyond Article 31 and its call for plain meaning, in light of the object and purpose, as well as context, subsequent agreements, subsequent practice, and other relevant rules, we have Article 32. And what Article 32 does is it allows for recourse to supplementary means of interpretation, including those related to the preparatory work of the treaty and the circumstances of its conclusions in two situations. First, to confirm the meaning produced from an analysis following the rule I laid out under Article 31. Or second, to determine the meaning when Article 31 leaves it ambiguous, obscure, or in the words of the Vienna Convention, quote, manifestly absurd or unreasonable. In other words, the Vienna Convention permits interpreters to introduce the travaux as well as other supplementary means, such as classic canons of construction, like preferring the specific over the general, uh, as part of the treaty interpretive process. What else is a supplementary means? Does it, for example, include the negotiating history of just one party? It's a harder question. The wording of Article 32 is broad enough that it could be included, Um, but there are also uh, clear reasons why you would not want to give it the same weight as joint drafting decisions or um, votes on amendment where you have a much more transparent sense of where the collective will of the state's parties lies. Taken together, the Vienna Convention rules on interpretation are widely praised. Indeed, they're thought to be one of the strengths of the Vienna Convention, Uh, and it is cited as customary international law and widely used in interpreting treaty texts, the ICJ has even used it to interpret treaty texts from before its entry into force, going all the way back to 1860. But look back at those four interpretive schools uh, I mentioned to you earlier, textual, intentional, New Haven, and restrictive. What's the VCLT's approach if you compare it to those four schools? My answer? Most of them. The Vienna Convention Law of Treaties rules reflect a hybrid approach. Article 31, subparagraph one, leans on the textual method, plain meaning, as well as a teleological approach in its call for attention to the object and purpose, while the intentional approach lies at the base of the supplementary means of interpretation contemplated in Article 32. The one thing that's not in the Vienna Convention is the restrictive approach, yet I think it still warrants attention, given recent scholarship suggesting pronouncements of its demise are premature, and that it manifests itself in interpretive claims, especially those involving territory or maritime boundaries. Okay, so we've got a call for textualism, teleology, and intent. How do we reconcile them? In particular, what's the relationship between Articles 31 and 32? Is Article 32 a fallback to Article 31? Should should you ever not look to the travaux and the preparatory materials? Some would say that this is the case as a formal matter, the view being that if Article 31 arrives you at a clear and unmistakable meaning, you should stop. And you do not need to or nor should you look to Article 32 materials. My own view though is more expansive. Both in my reading of Article 32 as always available to confirm the meaning you arrive at under the application of Article 31's rule on treaty interpretation. Uh, Indeed, I think it would be malpractice in some ways for a lawyer to do a treaty interpretation and not to check at least what the travel preparatoire have to say if they're available even if you have no intention of using them in any subsequent treaty interpretive analysis. So I think for its part, the International Law Commission gave us what they call a crucible approach. The idea is that we're to take all the evidence under Article 31 processes and Article 32, and we're trying to put them all kind of into a crucible, mix them up, and see what pours out. Still. In practice, for many states, they find the Vienna Convention has a textual flavor. Others view it ultimately as focused on discerning party intent, uh, whether through the text itself or subsidiary materials. Some judges emphasize Article 31's reference to object and purpose to privilege a teleological effort, since judges would like the greater freedom to reach preferred results than might be available under the travaux or even the text alone. In other words, perhaps the popularity of the Vienna Convention rules on treaty interpretation derives from their flexibility to appeal to different types and different methods of interpretation. That said, for all its successes, the VCLT doesn't answer all of the interpretive issues. It leaves open what to do with other relevant rules of international law. And what happens if the meaning of a term changes over time? Do you stick with the original meaning or let it evolve? On this last point, the VCLT's silence has enabled a continuing tension between champions of what we might call the principle of contemporaneity, where you interpret a treaty against the backdrop of the law at the time it was created, versus supporters of an evolutionary approach that suggests the meaning of the words in a treaty may vary as its colloquial meaning shifts over time. Others... I think both approaches are not only appropriate, but necessary, uh, and the question is, at what point should you use one or the other? In recent years, uh, the UN International Law Commission, under the rapporteurship of now ICJ Judge Georg Nolta, completed a large study on subsequent practice and subsequent agreements that touches on these and related topics. I think it's worth your attention should you encounter interpretive questions that have a temporal character. I'd close out our discussion of interpretation by noting how different treaty contexts may endanger uh, more, uh, may uh, engender more specialized interpretive rules, specifically with respect to treaties creating international organizations, or IOs, and treaties involving international human rights. For IO treaties, VCLT Article 5 suggests its interpretive rules apply without prejudice to the IO's own relevant rules. This creates a framework for adopting different interpretive approaches depending on what the IO's constituent instrument says. And following the ICJ's reparations opinion, there's also a much greater tendency to infer powers in IO treaties than elsewhere in the law of treaties. Under this approach, we prioritize teleology over text and the intentions on the grounds that there may be powers an IO needs to operate whether or not the treaty grants them expressly. Much of I.O. treaty interpretive practice currently has a constitutional flavor uh, in interpreting treaties in an expansive way based on the implied powers doctrine. What about human rights treaties? Is there a case to be made for going beyond ordinary meaning in interpreting them? Here I think we see a long-standing debate between exceptionalists who see these treaties structure governing a state's relationship to individuals as warranting a different approach. Uh, that there should be different rules for interpreting human rights treaties than those for treaties that are interstate treaties. Um, And also those who emphasize that human rights treaties are, are in fact, textually different, often with a single all-encompassing provision assigning states duties to respect and ensure rights that are then spelled out elsewhere in the treaty. This, I think, at least at a minimum provides for more specialized interpretive approaches in the human rights context. In the end, even with close attention to the VCLT interpretive regime, I'd like to think that interpretation is as much art as science. And like art, it's a skill that international lawyers can learn and perfect with repetitive engagements with treaty texts. Now, interpretation is critical when it comes to applying a treaty. I've already talked in one of my earlier lectures about different forms of treaty applications, including provisional application, where states agree to apply a treaty prior to its entry into force. A treaty's territorial application, where it applies to all of a state's territory unless the treaty says otherwise, or there are reservations on such matters. And we just discussed the application of treaty terms over time. Here I just want to add a few words on another way treaties apply, and that is domestically. So far we've studied the treaty in its international law context and to a lesser extent its functions in international relations. But the true reality is the treaty kind of lives a double life, right? In life one, it is a subject of international law. International law dictates the substantive and procedural rules by which the treaty operates. But there is kind of a second life for treaties, which is more domesticated. The notion that even as a treaty is binding under international law, treaties may have domestic legal force. And the two lives often ignore each other. So as we've discussed, VCLT Article 27 reminds us that in the international law context, a state cannot invoke its internal law to escape performance of its treaty obligations that are governed by international law. But within each state, it's not international law, but the state's constitutional system that governs. And it's those constitutional laws and the laws they engender that will dictate not only when a treaty can be formed, but whether it will operate within the internal domestic legal order at all and its relative status when it does so. In truth, treaties give rise to as many issues of domestic law as they do international law. We've talked already, for example, about the various ways a state defines its treaties, including how it may limit treaties to a subset of those that are approved by specific domestic procedures as opposed to say, quote unquote, executive agreements. It's important to know moreover that looking across the globe, different states approach the domestic approval process for treaties quite differently. It does seem that all states assign their executives treaty-making authority, and all states are equally uniform in limiting that authority in some way. For some states, almost no treaties can be made without legislative approval, or in fewer cases, actually requiring favorable opinion from a constitutional court. For others, most notably the states' parties of the Commonwealth, The executive power to make treaties is plenary. Treaties never require parliamentary approval. Other states lie in between. With some treaties like those impacting domestic law or funds uh, or requiring funds, these need legislative approval, while others can be made by the executive alone. And once a state joins a treaty, it's equally important to recognize that different domestic legal systems can accord the same treaty a different legal status. For some states, Again, those in the Commonwealth being the most prominent examples. Treaties never operate in and of themselves as domestic law. That makes sense, I think, given the prior point that there is no legislative role in treaty making in these states. In those cases, the treaties gain their domestic legal status only if they are adopted into domestic law via legislation. Treaties only have an indirect effect through new or existing implementing legislation or as a basis for interpreting existing law. At the other end of the spectrum are states who may give a treaty domestic legal effect equivalent to the Constitution itself. This is the case, for example, for a number of Latin American states with respect to their human rights treaty commitments. Other states treat treaties and domestic statutes as equivalent, which leads to things like a later-in-time rule, like the one we see in Egypt where treaties and statutes conflict, the one that's later in time will predominate. Other states afford treaties a role in domestic law, but make them subsidiary to statutory authorities, as is the case in South Africa. And some states, like my own, complicate the matter by subdividing treaties into multiple categories, whether in terms of their domestic legal status or in the availability of judicial enforcement. And here it's worth noting states like the Netherlands and the United States have a category of self-executing treaties. which once in force, operate as the law of the land. But these same states deny other treaties, so-called non-self-executing treaties, any judicial enforcement. Now my point here is not to make you an expert on different domestic legal applications of treaties. Indeed, these lectures have featured a focus primarily and featured primarily international law. But I do want to raise awareness of the diversity of law and practice, both in how states authorize treaty making and the legal status that treaties once made have within the domestic legal order precisely because it can affect not only the formation of treaties and the negotiations, but also their operation and application. I'd like to turn now briefly to treaty amendments. As we've been seeing for a while now, one thing that makes treaties attractive is their stability. They last. They can last in perpetuity, if you will. Occasionally, however, treaties require adjustment, whether to accommodate new facts, new law, or some interest in deepening or perhaps lessening the commitments assumed. The primary way uh, to adjust a treaty in such circumstances is via an amendment. Note, I say primary because there are at least four other ways to alter a treaty commitment. You could do a standalone protocol as, say, the Montreal Protocol on the protection of the ozone layer, which was uh, uh, supplementary to the Vienna Convention on the ozone layer. You could also do treaty body decisions. To the extent a conference of the parties or a meeting of the parties exists under a treaty, their decisions might in some ways uh, uh, alter or adjust the treaty's uh, or at least the understanding of how the treaty operates. A superseding treaty is another possibility, particularly given that VCLT Article 59 allows an earlier treaty to be terminated or suspended. If it appears from a later treaty text or the party's intentions, They wanted the later treaty to govern the same subject matter, or the provisions are so far incompatible that the two treaties can't apply at the same time. And more controversially, there's the question of whether collective interpretations or authentic interpretations can actually amend or modify a treaty. But what amendments do, amendments clearly formally change or make changes to a treaty's text, whether it's main provisions or it's annexes. Today, a treaty will usually specify its own procedures for amendment, although some framework conventions will specify procedures not just for the framework convention, but any protocols adopted thereunder. In the absence of a treaty providing such rules, you can refer to the Articles 39 and 40 of the Vienna Convention for default rules. In terms of their legal effects, treaty amendments bind those states that consent to them. In the bilateral context, that means that either side can veto a proposed amendment, Plurilateral treaties will often sometimes favor a similar unanimity unanimity rule. In multilateral treaties, though, the amendment's only going to bind the states that subsequently consent. So, you know, the one caveat is that if a party joins a multilateral treaty after it's been amended, it will usually be bound by the amended form of that treaty pursuant to the Article 40, subparagraph 5 of the Vienna Convention. As with other areas of treaty law though, it's important to recognize that decisions on whether to pursue an amendment implicate different and sometimes competing values. These include sovereignty, right, that protecting the rights of states to to consent or not consent, the stability of the treaty itself, the need for dynamism or adaptability in the face of changing circumstances, facts or law, and integrity. The Warsaw convention on certain rules relating to international carriage by air is a cautionary tale about how amendments left unchecked can cause chaos with respect to a treaty's overall integrity. The failure of successive amendments there to draw sufficient consent from state parties to earlier versions has created an enormously complex and narrowly indecipherable set of treaty obligations by each state party <coughs> to the underlying convention vis-a-vis each other state party. What's clear though is that different treaty types weren't different types of amendment structures. Human rights treaties require stability, presumably more than dynamism. Environmental or technological treaties may instead require more deference to dynamism to accommodate changes uh, in technology or environmental knowledge. Treaties that create international organizations have strict rules and amendments, uh, including kicking out non-consenting parties uh, from the treaty to preserve their integrity. Because of the IOs to be able to operate, they need everyone to be agreed and applying the same rules. The UN Charter offers a model for how such amendment rules may operate in that context. Now in recent years, states have shown a willingness to have different types of amendment procedures for different parts of the same treaty, depending on what those provisions do. So environmental treaties may have one set of amendment procedures for the main text and a different set of amendment procedures for its annexes. For our purposes, I would highlight how practices evolve to encompass two standard sets of amendment processes. The first classic or standard set of amendment procedures, and second, a more novel or simplified or tacit set of amendment procedures. These have emerged in recent years. The standard process involves an amendment proposal from a party or parties or a treaty body, the negotiation and then adoption of amendment. The adoption process can balance interests differently whether by requiring consensus or a simple majority for adoption. And then after adoption, the amendment will enter into force on the acceptance of a specified majority of the parties, but it will only enter into force for those parties that ratify it. Tacit consent or opt-out amendment procedures are different. In these cases, the plenary body adopts an amendment by majority decision that then binds all treaty parties except those opting out within some period of time. Now, some variations allow a certain number of objections to defeat the amendment entirely. Others have states uh, be able to opt out of tacit amendment entirely on joining the treaty. But in any case, these tacit consent procedures or tacit amendment procedures have become a standard practice now for dealing with technical standards, uh, whether at the ITU, the WHO, or the International Maritime Organization. Note, though, attention should be paid to whether the actual practice follows or departs from the amendment procedures that are uh, in the treaty text itself. The Montreal Protocol, for example, authorizes adjustments to all parties' obligations to produce and consume certain ozone-depleting substances um, by a majority vote. And it binds all parties as a result of that majority vote. But the parties have never actually employed or exercised this authority, preferring to make all adjustments under the Montreal Protocol by consensus instead. So, attention to the practice is useful and necessary along with the relevant rules under the Vienna Convention and customary international law. Okay, I'd like to turn to our last topic treaty exit, which actually combines cases where termination and suspension of a treaty occurs by operation of legal rules and cases where states themselves craft vehicles for withdrawal or exit. Let me highlight six ways to terminate a treaty. The first three of which depend in some form on the party's own agreement or autonomy. That's uh, termination in terms of agreements of the termination by agreement of the parties, termination by the treaty's terms, or if the nature of the treaty allows termination. Then we'll talk about three other available exit options that occur by operation of law, and these involve breach, impossibility, and fundamental change of circumstances, which you may know by its Latin phrase sic stantibus. I chose these six because they're the most prominent, not because they're an exhaustive listing. And I'm also leaving off related topics like treaty suspension and the doctrine of necessity that may apply to treaties via the law of state responsibility. But it is the case that a treaty can end by agreement of the parties. If all the state's parties agree the treaty's not working, they can all agree to terminate it. The winding up of the rubber treaty offers a good example of this in state practice. Second, treaties can end in accordance with their terms. Some treaties allow withdrawal after notice, say 60 days or six months. Others limit withdrawal for some initial period. So the Paris Agreement prohibited withdrawals within the first three years after a state party joined it, but allowed it thereafter on one year's notice. Additional conditions on exit are also possible. Uh, The Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty required a withdrawing state to cite the quote, extreme national interest that justified its decision to withdraw. Now sometimes uh, a treaty will be time limited from the outset. That means it'll last only for a designated fixed term and so that its termination will occur just at the expiration of that period. um, uh, Or allow for it to end and then be subject to renewal whether uh, at the election of the parties or automatically. Now what happens if a treaty has no provision for termination or withdrawal? Article 56 of the Vienna Convention suggests a general rule against denunciation or withdrawal provides an exception if the parties can be shown to have admitted such a possibility or such a right may be implied from the nature of the treaty itself. Obviously, this spawns questions about which treaties by their nature are susceptible to denunciation and which are not. I'd place treaties of alliance or trade among those whose nature would permit termination under the assumption that, you know, these are always kind of shifting economic alliances. But contrast that with, say, claim settlement agreements, like the U.S.-China claim Settlement Treaty on the bombing of the Chinese Embassy in Belgrade, which presumably is not the sort of thing having agreed to and settled the claim that can be then undone. Note, moreover, even if a state can establish a right to withdraw from a treaty, under the treaty's nature, the Vienna Convention requires that it do so with at least 12 months' notice. So it does not provide an automatic, immediate right of withdrawal, even if you can imply it from the nature of the treaty. You have to give at least 12 months notice. And then there's breach. Article 60 of the Vienna Convention says you can terminate or suspend in whole or in part a treaty where the other party has engaged in a material breach. So not all breaches will entitle you to terminate or suspend, only those that are material. Material breaches are described as those the repudiation or violation of which involve an essential provision of the treaty. Now, unlike the validity grounds discussed in my third lecture, it's important to note that breach makes the treaty voidable, not void. Injured states are left with the option as to whether to suspend or terminate the whole treaty, or part of it, or leave the relationship in its original form. Whereas the validity criteria we discussed in my third lecture um, it makes the treaty void ab initio. The treaty cannot be resurrected by the agreement of the parties. You would have to do so uh, again. Or if it's use cogens violations, you can never do so. Now, unless the treaty itself contains remedies for cases of breach, as some do, what you can do with breaching party, Article 60's authorization only provides uh, a right to terminate or suspend uh, in cases of breach. Those are the only remedies to breach that the law of treaties provides. This may be counterproductive if the injured state is seeking to garner compliance from the breaching party, not an end to the treaty relationship. So as such, it's not surprising to see that in practice, states have turned to the law of state responsibility and doctrines like retorsion and countermeasures as additional tools to incentivize parties to respond to internationally wrongful acts, including treaty breaches, rather than relying on Article 60 alone. It's also worth emphasizing that Article 60 explicitly precludes suspending or, termi- or terminating humanitarian treaties in cases of breach. Remember I said the, the Vienna Conference, the Vienna Convention doesn't distinguish different treaty types with the exception of IO treaties and humanitarian ones. And I think here, given the treaties, these treaties protect individuals, it makes little sense to say another state has breached human rights treaty provisions so other states can terminate their obligations and go ahead and breach human rights treaty provisions. And hence, the Vienna Convention does not allow that. Beyond breach lies impossibility. Article 61 of the Vienna Convention provides that a state can terminate a treaty if it's impossible to perform because of the permanent disappearance or destruction of an object indispensable for the execution of the treaty. In other words, it's not that it's hard or expensive for a state to comply. The object of the treaty must no longer be available. Right? A treaty that protects animal species that go extinct, that would be a good example of where a claim for impossibility might arise. Or a treaty about navigating a river that dries up as a result of climate change might be another good example. Finally, there are fundamental changes of circumstances, or Rabus stantibus. This one is framed in the negative. According to Article 62 of the VCLT, unforeseen circumstances cannot be an excuse for terminating a treaty unless the circumstances were an essential basis of the treaty and the effect of the change is to radically transform the extent of the obligations still to be performed. Now, many of the foregoing issues were on display in a single case, arguably one of the most famous in the law of treaties, uh, and that's the case concerning the Gabchakovo Nagimaros project before the International Court of Justice. Let me give you the facts briefly. In 1977, Hungary and Czechoslovakia concluded a treaty to build a system of locks and dams on the Danube River with large dams at Gabcikovo in Czechoslovakia and Nagy Maros in Hungary. They were done, this was done to quote, significantly contribute to bringing about their socialist integration. But in reality, Hungarian domestic political opinion opposed the project on both economic and environmental grounds from very early on, leading Hungary to abandon work on the Nagy Maros portion of the project in 1989 at which point Czechoslovakia's Gabcikovo project was already nearly finished. Negotiations ensued, but Czechoslovakia, frustrated by the lack of progress, decided to proceed and develop their own provisional solution, unilaterally diverting waters to operate the Gabcikovo Dam. This led to Hungary to terminate the 1977 treaty on May 15, 1992, with six days' notice. The court found Hungary's termination effort ineffective, finding no evidence that the treaty parties had intended a possibility of denunciation. And of course, even if they had, as we've discussed, Hungary would have been required to give 12 months notice. The court also confirmed that absent grounds for termination in the treaty text itself, a treaty can only be terminated on the limited grounds listed in the Vienna Convention. And then the court then methodically dismissed all such grounds Hungary had alleged. For example, Hungary had alleged that the treaty's object an economic joint investment considered consistent with environmental protection, had disappeared as a basis for claiming impossibility. The ICJ said no. It found that if a joint exploration project was no longer possible, it was because Hungary had ceased to perform its obligations under the treaty and per Article 61, could not then invoke its own acts as the basis for impossibility. In other words, states with unclean hands cannot invoke impossibilities that they help create. And even if there were no unclean hands, the court went on to suggest that it was not enough for a party to encounter difficulties, economic or otherwise, in meeting their obligations. Impossibility requires that permanent disappearance of an object essential to the performance of the treaty obligations. Beyond impossibility, Hungary also invoked a fundamental change of circumstances, namely the end of the Cold War, the profound political changes it brought to the region, including the separation of Czechoslovakia into the Czech and Slovak republics, of which only the Slovak Republic remained as part of the suit itself. Hungary also claimed new knowledge about the project's environmental risks and its project, and its diminishing economic value. Here, too, the ICJ was unconvinced. It rejected the premise that the changes were um, uh, uh, an essential basis uh, for the treaty in the first place. It suggested while political changes were significant, that the project had been about energy production, not about political ideology, and those changes therefore weren't essential to the object and purpose of the treaty itself. Gabcikava Nagimaros is a vivid illustration of a theme we've seen throughout these lectures when it comes to the Vienna Convention. Its non-consensual rules, including those in validity and exit, really value stability. As a result, while there are a number of bases on which to relieve a state of its treaty obligations, impossibility, change of circumstances, breach. Their scope is narrow and the factual hurdle is high. With that, I hope that if you've listened to the five lectures, you now have a good overview, not just of the international law of treaties, but are able to situate treaties within the international legal order, within international relations, and even domestic law in ways that allow you to appreciate the treaty's many functions. Again, as I've said before, I liken the treaty to a Swiss army knife capable of being put to multiple uses for creating law, as well as a basis for more bilateral or plurilateral or multilateral obligations. Let me close with some reflections on where the law of treaties stands today at the close of 2021. I would describe the state of treaties today as Charles Dickens described things in his uh, opening his novel, A Tale of Two Cities. To quote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. In some ways, it is the best of times today for treaties. Today, treaties dominate the international landscape, with 72,000 treaties registered at the United Nations alone, and notwithstanding many states fail to register their treaties or do so only after lengthy delays. Treaties are ubiquitous in the day-to-day work of international and, in many states, domestic lawyering. Consider, for example, the work of the 24 permanent international courts and the 37,000 binding rulings they've issued since the end of the Cold War, according to Karen Alton. Treaties provide the foundation for all these cases. They are almost always the source of the court's jurisdiction and authority, and in many cases provide the substantive standards for evaluating the litigants' behavior. Treaties have played a similar role with often... Significant economic repercussions in the 676 cases of investor state arbitration that had been reported through the end of 2020, or 2019, excuse me. Major disputes like those in the South China Sea remind us, moreover, of the dramatic geopolitical implications treaties have, even where their existence or meaning is contested. Simply put, today's treaties may have a a more prevalent and important role in the construction of international law and international relations than at any other time in human history. And yet for many treaty lawyers, these are not good times. And Agora and Agile Unbound Bound asked in 2014 if we are witnessing, quote, the end of treaties. And although further empirical research is needed, several signs suggest states and scholars may no longer regard regard the treaty as the go-to instrument for international agreement. The World Trade Organization has not reached a major agreement in the decades since its creation. Treaty withdrawals appear on the rise in both bilateral contexts like investment and multilaterally in events like Brexit and several states' withdrawals from the Whaling Convention and the Rome Statute. In their stead, as we've discussed, states appear to increasingly employ non-binding political commitments, whether it's the Basel III response to the 2008 financial crisis or the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. On top of all this, the last decade has witnessed rising distrust in global governance generally and various agreements manifesting it specifically. The question for diplomats and international lawyers then is how to reconcile these contradictory narratives. Is one of the two tales wrong? Might it be that the international cooperation remains vibrant despite the anecdotes I've just cited? You know, even if treaties are forming at lower rates, maybe it's a sign of the pervasiveness of the existing treaties we do have on everything from fish to finance. And that's why we're not having new agreements because there's so many existing agreements that need to be implemented. Or maybe these readings miss the larger challenges of modern treaty making, where it's not clear actually how effective they are in achieving their goals that motivated their formation, and where there are populist sentiments calling into question the need for and utility of international cooperation in the first place. I prefer, though, like Dickens, to embrace a view that both tales are true at the same time. Treaties are, after all, a sophisticated and widely used vehicle for agreement among states and other stakeholders the breadth and depth of current treaty practice may well be broad enough to accommodate a world where treaties are both ascendant and declining, a world where treaties dominate and a world where they are simultaneously suspect. So it's my hope that these lectures have given you tools to engage with treaties at the doctrinal level, but also more functionally to evaluate the underlying rationales for certain treaty actions and the values, problems, and interests that their formation, interpretation, application uh, will implicate. So in closing, I'll leave you to your own analysis to offer a better assessment of whether the treaty's best days are now past, or whether they still await in the future that lies ahead. Thanks for your attention to all five of these lectures, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed them. Thank you.